Hello, everyone. Uh, this is the Outsource Podcast. Uh, I'm Jonathan here with Caleb. Hello, everyone. And with Yash. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Um, just been busy with life stuff. Uh, but I think we're going to have a, a good conversation today. We're going to be talking about cybernetics uh, and the economy. Right, Caleb? Yeah, that's right. I think we'll be focusing more on uh, the economy as a maybe a, uh, as a more like approachable subject. But uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously, as, as we uh, establish the sort of um, origin of the modern economy and modern economics, and we'll be forced to address the cybernetics as well. Yeah, sounds good. Um... So I guess, oh, the question posed for today. I guess, oh, I'll come up with a question and then y'all can give feedback if, if y'all want. Um, I think the main question that we are trying to address today is uh, what is the economy? What is economics? Um, and does it even matter for us? Sound good? Yeah, let's go with that. So I actually, um, I want to ask Yash about your, I know that you mentioned like you have a, a like a kind of limited understanding of econ, um, but if anything, it's probably more informed than like the average person. Uh, but like for you, when you hear like the word econ or you like see the word economics and like the newspaper or something like that, what? What like comes to your mind when you see that or you hear that or someone's talking about it? So first of all, um, I did economics back in high school. So I have a very a sort of vague understanding of the basic concepts involved in economics. But coming back to your question, John, when I see the word economics in like papers or in the news, journals, media, whatever, I sort of see it as um, the study of exchange in a way, financial exchanges in in society, and um, how this process drives price, demand, supply, which I believe are the, the three key factors um, in the study of economics. Once again, not a hundred percent sure, but this is sort of my perspective on the subject. So um, when you were taking econ in, in high school, was it mostly like macroeconomics, like talking about like large oversweeping generalizations of like supply and demand curves and stuff like that? Yeah, we did, we did a bit of both. So we did uh, uh, some micro and some macro. And um, yeah, so we looked at companies, specific companies, and the way they structure economic policies to benefit them. And then we looked at governments and saw the way they had, um, you know, how they played a part in the economy and how they influenced the economy. Cool. I kind of want to ask, um, in, in reflecting back on what you learned 
um, not only then, but also, you know, your time since then. What are some of the assumptions do you think that are kind of like inherent in the way that like people talk about economics uh, or like they believe in economics? That's a, that's a really good question. And um, I think one of the sort of the biggest things that stand out to me today when I look back is the fact that I couldn't properly internalize the concept of economics. Like I could understand what an elastic good was or a perfect competition was, but it never sort of, I, I was never able to truly appreciate it until I grew much older and I was able to sort of connect it to real life examples. Uh, with that being said, I think uh, in, in current society, uh, people have a very, I mean, everyone has a sort of basic understanding of the economy because, you know, you have people buying and selling things and you have people who um, engage in, uh, you know, interactions with businesses or trades and whatnot. But I feel like uh, there's a lot more uh, to it than it seems. And in many ways, people sort of oversimplify the whole notion of economics and I think, uh, in, in general, people need to sort of explore the world of economics more and uh, understand the intricacies of it. And you mentioned um, that you weren't able to kind of like appreciate some of the, the concepts until you saw them like happen in real life. Do you, are there any examples like off the top of your head um, they've like seen this, like affecting, I don't know, pricing or demand or, or something like that. I think, I think a, uh, a good example would be of, it was quite recently, uh, it was doing the first wave of coronavirus and when the first lockdowns, uh, started happening and Correct me if I'm wrong, John, an inelastic good is something that uh, it, as long as you change the price of it, it doesn't affect the demand, right? Like people will still buy it if you change the price. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and usually inelastic goods are like uh, things that you require on a daily basis, uh, you know, things like lifestyle items, uh, toilet paper, toothbrushes and stuff. Um. I think, yeah, you could yeah. generalize it in uh, that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, I was sort of able to appreciate the whole notion of an inelastic good and sort of understand the uh, defining ideology behind it. And um, when the first lockdown hit, when people were like bumping up prices of toilet paper to like crazy levels. And, you know, people are still buying it because obviously they need a toilet paper. That's when it truly hit me, you know. Oh, dang. Okay. You know, people are still going to buy it no matter what. So I, I guess that would be like one of the most, um, like the clearest example I could give you of how I was able to fully appreciate or internalize the concept of economics. Well, not the concept of economics, but a concept within the field of economics. And sorry, just going back to the toilet paper uh, example that you mentioned, is it that you 
saw that like people were buying it up and that they were buying it up at any price or or what was sorry i think i just missed that yeah because um you have people who are just buying insane amounts of toilet paper and hoarding it and as a result there was lesser toilet paper available and to make it harder for people to get their hands on it companies were bumping up the prices of toilet paper and people were still ready to pay um like insane amounts of money for a, 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 i don't know what the unit is for like a stack a stack of toilet paper and when when that happened did so like in the uk was it that like the local grocery store you saw increase the price or was this like on ebay and, and facebook and stuff like that i can't speak for the uk because i wasn't in the uk when it when the first lockdown happened oh, okay but then where, wherever you were yeah back home in in singapore it was definitely the case for like um online retailers because you wouldn't you wouldn't even find it in grocery stores because st- it would be out of stock in grocery stores so you wouldn't even find toilet paper in like your um you know your local grocery store but uh, it would be online on ebay or uh you have your local sort of online dealers where you could buy toilet paper and they would bump up the prices to like absolutely crazy amounts and people would still buy it so i guess that was sort of the situation back then. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um. So I think I think that that's kind of like a good introduction to how folks um, understand economics uh, in a contemporary sense. Um, I think we wanted to dive a little deeper into what exactly um, some of the history of economics, some of the, the underlying assumptions. Um, did you have any thoughts on, on this, Caleb? Well, um, I do think that uh, before we maybe go any further, it might be important to sort of uh, distinguish um, exactly what we mean when we say uh, economics during this episode, because, uh, Firstly, I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, maybe economics of like a lowercase e and economics of an uppercase e, right? Um, in the sense that there is a difference between um, sort of um, maybe how we would understand economics in a general sense of uh, like uh, of uh, exchanges of, of value, maybe, or, or just, you know, like people buying things uh, in general. And then, uh, but also, you know, as we, uh, but but also the uh, the more like structured and and uh, uh, institutionalized idea of of economics of a larger E as forming this sort of science um, and and sort of becoming a an entity in, in itself, right? Because nowadays, when you say economics, we we are sort of uh, referring to or reaching towards a an idea of economics. Uh, whereas, you know, back in, in the past, before we had this sort of, um, uh, this, before we had, you know, this idea of economics as, as uh, being a sort of organism in and of itself, uh, you know, then economics would just have been, you know, whatever trade was happening, uh, 
in in whatever in whatever uh, locale that you were looking at. Um, yeah, is that is that making sense so far? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and then uh, and I do think that you know maybe uh, as a a further distinguishing factor, uh, we maybe should uh, also point out that we will probably be talking more about neoliberal economics today. Um, uh, understanding that there are different ways of 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 uh, sort of approaching economics, and we're going to talk about what is more prevalent around the world and more prevalent in America right now. But it's also uh, maybe going to look more at how Jonathan and I learned economics, um, and I'm I'm not too sure exactly the details of what Yash's economic education would have been like, um, and that's just because it's uh, more of what we're familiar with. Um, and so, you know, if we say something and, and you're and you're like, oh, well, they don't teach that in our country or that's not how they talk about it, then, you know, that's because there's differences in, in how people, in uh, how different countries or uh, sort of approach the idea of economics, you know. And, and obviously, uh, America is like so bad at economic theory that we always just go and steal the economic theories of different countries in Europe. So... Um, uh, yeah, uh, Jonathan, anything you, you want to say before we sort of start talking about the historical background? Um, I guess just real quickly, like in, in the distinction between the, the large E and the small E of economics, um, I think today's discussion is going to be more geared towards the larger E economics rather than maybe what, like, what Caleb was saying, um, the quote-unquote economics of like everyday like going to the store like Costco um, and purchasing something. Uh, and it's more thinking about the underlying assumptions of uh, economic theory when you take like a quote unquote simple principle like that and you expound upon it and you try to create policy off of it um, or you have larger assumptions about how the greater quote unquote economy uh, or domestic economy works other than like two or like only a couple of private parties uh, engaging in some kind of trade. So that's just a kind of further distinction that we're not going to be talking about just people transact having transactions with each other, but rather um, the, the history behind the academic study of economics um, and how it affects uh, and has affected like policy, uh, people's just perception of what, the economy, like the stock market is. Just really quickly, John, uh, don't mean to interrupt you. Um, so for the purposes of this episode today, do you think it would be appropriate to sort of discuss economics through, I don't want to say tools, but rather through the notions of price, supply and demand? Because as you guys said, you want to sort of get the holistic big picture idea. But would you say that for somebody who is uh, not very familiar with economics, it would be a good way to sort of introduce them into the world of economics by giving them something they can relate to? Um, I think that in terms of giving things that people can relate to, yes, it is helpful in them understanding something like how it tangibly affects them. Um, 
but and Caleb, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that what we kind of want to focus on is that people have this weird perception of what economics is when it's talked about in the news, um, when people just like throw it in in like a, a research paper or something like that. Um, and today we kind of want to discuss the background behind that belief, um, whether or not it's appropriate or not appropriate. Um, because when people are going about their daily lives, they're not thinking about like a price index. They're not thinking about like supply and demand in theoretical terms. Um, I don't think most people even think about that when they go like to Costco other than like, oh, like why is, why are these apples so expensive today? Like they were cheaper yesterday. Um, so in actuality, I don't think like normal quote unquote like everyday people doing their everyday lives, like really think about economics in the way that it's um, discussed so frequently. So I'm not, I maybe you know maybe I should be if we're recording this episode, but um, you know I'm not familiar with how economics is taught outside of United States. Um, so like I have I have no idea what economic theory is like in you know for you know like China for example or Russia right. And so I don't know how sort of prevalent these concepts of things like, you know, like supply and demand lines and uh, I don't I don't know, like how drastically different uh, differences of of economic teaching is going to be. Um, But uh, uh, I, I my intention coming into this podcast was to be highly critical of the way that economics are taught and are understood. Uh, actually, even at like the academic level, um, because uh, I, th- I think there's like major problems with um, how I, I think there's major problems with the field as a whole, and uh, you know, and I think we'll definitely be able to get into that once we start talking about um, maybe the historical basis and the origin of, of economics. Um, so uh, no, Yash, I I actually don't think this would be that great of a an introduction to the the idea of economics, just because we will be talking about, um, we will be discussing th- economic concepts where like if people don't even know like the definitions of what they mean, then um, probably get lost pretty quick quickly even you know, and, and we'll try to give basic explanations of whatever it is uh, we talk about. Um, but the thing is that you know you you did economics in in high school and and uh, it's uh, and it's actually pretty common for I think at least Americans to do you know at least some basic economics in in either high school or college um, general education or you know what whatever degree that it is that people get so I'm not I'm not too worried about maybe. Uh, tackling a, a topic which is too unapproachable uh, just because I think most people sort of have a basic understanding of you know at least like the very core concepts of things like supply and demand so with that um, I guess we could just jump right into the history I suppose of economic thought um, and throughout this episode, we're going to be referencing um, the pseudo-doxology episode um, on political economy, um, which gives a pretty 
massive overview of the history um, and historical context of the creation of political economy um, and how it influences uh, or has influenced neoliberalism and neoliberalist uh, economic theory um, and policy. But uh, I guess I want to ask you, Caleb, so based off of your, uh, after like listening to that episode and, and kind of like mulling it over a little while, um, what was your like basic understanding of what the the history of economics, the the quote unquote origins of it began? That's a that's a really sort of a broad question. Um, um, and you know, it's like not my intention to to do their job and steal their research, right? And so I don't think it's too important for us to you know maybe talk about actual people or as actual historical events or you know actual schools of economic thought uh but maybe to just generalize and 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 just briefly describe uh the ideas as they formed right um and so uh you know go ahead and stop me at any point but you know like i said you know uh if you go back in in history and at a certain point uh there would have been no economics with a capital e right? or or rather there would have been no uh conceptualization of of economics as being a sort of transcendent idea that exists outside of the outside of the market right because people would have had these uh understandings of of you know, work, uh, labor, capital, uh, money, trade, shipping, uh, you know, all of these, even, you know, early investments, all of these things, which, uh, which sort of, you would, you would say, like, maybe constitute or make up the economy, right? But they would not have thought of the economy as, as being of the way that we see it now, right? Of like the economy with an E is like, oh, the economy is up or the economy is down, um, or or you know the uh, uh, you know we have to do all of these things about the economy. They they wouldn't have um, they 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 didn't understand all of these things as you know sitting underneath like this overarching um, label or idea of. Of economics, right, and uh, it, it maybe to pull a the easiest analogy that comes to mind, you know, uh, evangelical Christians or Protestant Christians, you know, they always talk about the church with like a capital C, you know, and and they'll group all of the, you know, all of what like Christians do, and or group all of like the the churches with a, with a lowercase c, you know, as being like your individual physical building, and they'll group all of that underneath this idea of the church or all of the Christians, you know, all of the, uh, the believers. Right. And so th that idea of, of church doesn't exist. Right. But it exists because, you know, people believe that it does, or, or people have this idea that it exists. And, and in that way, it, it formulates as a sort of, um, like a higher concept. Right. And so in a similar way, right. Economics, with a cap with a capital E, right? It does not exist, right? It exists only within 
the understanding or the conceptualization uh, uh, of the world in that way, right? And obviously you have exchanges of value and you have, um, you know, all of these things that make up the, the markets and the economy, right? Uh, but economics of a capital E, it, it doesn't exist um, in, a, in the physical, tangible sense that, you know, that like the things you buy at the store exist. Um, or, or, you know, like the movement of trade. Uh, is that clear so far? Yeah, I think that is a, a very important distinction because um, this kind of gets us on the right footing in terms of uh, addressing some of the underlying assumptions in modern economic theory in that I think a lot of folks, me included when I was in high school and even in college, um, kind of understood economic theory, quote-unquote, um, or the study of economics to be uh, a process of discovering the, the not necessarily the truths, but kind of like discovering um, what economics, like the, the people performing transaction with people, with other people and stuff like that, like the discovery of those systems. Um, when actuality, it's not really a discovery of systems more than it is people trying to just describe um, things happening. And like Caleb said, the description of things are, are, is not the same thing as the things in and of themselves. Um, and so the first kind of assumption uh, that we would want to dispel is that, like Caleb said, that the economics that people talk about, it's not real. Um, and that it's not like, like you go outside and you see the sun and the sun like hits your face and it's warm. It, economics and the way that people talk about it is a concept. It's, it's fake in that aspect. Um, and uh, as we go, keep on talking throughout this episode, I think it's going to be really apparent how um, it's not only just a concept, but the kind of underlying assumptions that people have are just simply not true. So it's like a, it's like a fake concept that people just have in their minds. It's not even accurate. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Uh, so I, I think when we consider the the formulation of of or you know maybe the genesis of economics with the capital E, uh, it in uh, in many ways parallels the development of modern government that we maybe talked more about in our technocracy episode, right? And and that's really where we get into this idea of. Uh, of cybernetics, right? Which I don't know if we actually use that word in our in our. I don't remember exactly how much we use that word or that concept in our discussion of uh, what we call the technocracy. Um, uh, but we'll 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 get we'll get into it today, and we'll explain it maybe a bit more exactly what we mean by that. But um, you know, I I I think nowadays when we when we hear the word cybernetics, we think of things like we think of like sci-fi um ideas and and you know like cyborgs or like um you know like cybernetic implants and like planting a, a chip in your brain and or having like having like uh digital eyes and uh stuff from like like cyberpunk 2077 or or star wars or something um but you know, back when 
this idea was originally formed, um, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't really, they didn't have uh, PlayStation Five. They didn't have Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. More importantly, they didn't have uh, modern technology, and so the way that they conceptualized um, uh, uh, an idea like cybernetics was not even necessarily uh, digital way back at its form, formula, uh, formulation. Um, uh, instead, it's it's a lot more... Um, I don't know. I don't know if basic is necessarily the right word. Um, but it's, it's a lot more basic in the sense of uh, really describing more of the uh, maybe uh, systematic sense or, or ma- machine-like or organized um, sense uh, because it, you, you, you have to think about what society would have been like um, a few centuries ago right where you have all of these uh, where, where the economy is becoming or the world is becoming more complex um, you know uh, trade is is growing in in size and complexity. A governance is growing in in size and complexity. Um, and and you know as all of that is happening, the ways that people understand things is becoming more complex as well, right? And so whereas before, um, you know everything would have just been uh, understood as what it is, right? Uh, you know going to the store is just going to the store buying things from uh you know buying things from this place is just that you know the british empire going to india and taking all of the resources is it's just going to india and taking all of the resources right it's it's not about um it's not really seen as fitting into all of these uh higher narratives or or higher ideas uh that is like in the in the way that we understand events uh, in the modern day, right? Where everything fits into like these higher concepts, and everything fits into a, like a sort of story. Um, we have like names for all of the phenomena that happen because we categorize everything into um, into like different ways that the world works. Um, I hope I'm not getting like too abstract. I'm hoping that <laughs> I can try to keep this uh, at least understandable um and so as the complexity of ideas grow um people are also sort of uh creating or conceptualizing new ways of uh structuring or managing society right and so that's where you're you've you know all of these different ideas of how government or government or society uh, should actually be be run, um, you know, start to happen where you get all of these sort of modern day uh, philosophers writing about different forms of government, right? Um, and so one of the the prevailing ideas that rises out of this time is uh, this idea of cybernetics, and you know, like I said, it's it's not you know cyborgs and and digital, its organization and system, 
monetization. Uh, the, the conversion of these uh, realities um, from, you know, just being whatever they were as uh, individual and detached occurrences um, and accumulating them and combining them into a more cohesive idea and, uh, and concept uh, for the practical effects of being able to better control and influence everything that is happening on a grand scale. Right? Because if you think about it, unless you have these ways of, of turning everything into a sort of system and categorizing everything that happens, unless you have this sort of structure, right, you can't really control or influence everything. If, if you can't even like, like conceptualize it in that way, then you, it's very difficult to control it or influence it. Um, at least without another way of, of seeing things. Just because if, if, if the way you see everything is just, you know, uh, you know, this transaction happens here and this transaction happens there, and you don't, if you don't see it as happening, uh, you don't see those two things as being connected, then it becomes far more difficult to, you know, control whatever happens in the economy and influence it in a, in a grander scale. Am I making sense, or am I just uh, am I just rambling? Um, I think sense. I think one thing to kind of add to this is that um, the discussion of of cybernetics and and organizing things into systems is uh, very largely influenced by the ideas in the Enlightenment, um, specifically the kind of empiricist thought that uh, comes out of it. Um, because when you look at the kind of work that uh, early economists and even political philosophers, uh, when they were moving away from kind of just pure theory into um, looking at how do we uh, how do we then govern, a lot of their decisions um, and rationale uh, was a result of trying to empirically measure and understand uh, their their world. Um, and so when we're talking about cybernetics and we're talking about the economy, so much of that has been influenced by this kind of like assumption that things can be quantified and not only that things can be quantified, but that things should be quantified because uh, it's the most, I don't know, objective form of understanding the world. Um, and so when we're, so when we're talking about things like, like systems theory, um, and and feedback loops feedback loops within cybernetics all of that is within the context of this empiricist uh, perspective this empiricist worldview um, but I think that we kind of touched on this in our previous episodes that something that is that has an extremely strong basis in empiricism in in data quote unquote and trying to measure that data it's it, it's not the most reliable um, because as we know today that, you know, statistics, that quote unquote data uh, can be manipulated. The, the observation of data is, is not always as objective um, as people think it is. 
hopefully that that makes sense is, is that making sense caleb yeah um no yeah that's a thank you thank you for the uh that uh clarification um and it's um it's a good it's a good starting point i think uh is is this idea of uh empiricist thought um because the organization of society and, and things like the economy is actually very much linked to the idea of the organism right and that's also something which comes out of uh, empiricist thought of these people who are studying uh, forms of life you know and for, for uh, studying things like the human body and determining that um, they function as like the the, the organized uh, accumulation of, of, of many small processes and then together in their complexity form like a, a self-regulating whole right and you we have these ideas of of like the the bio of biology or, or, or the medical field of like homeostasis right uh, with this idea of um, the body regulates itself um, uh, to like maintain life right um, and so as uh, you know as these uh, as these people are, are, are creating these more organized or uh, system systematic or classified ways of of of, of running society and, and and conceptualizing like these very big and these very grand ideas um, it's very much related to uh, you know the origins of what we call science uh, in that uh, you know these these people are, are looking at the, the studies that are being done or or the, the the writing that is being done and saying like oh, oh so this must be how the world works right and so you know when 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 scientists quote-unquote scientists are are you know like looking at the natural world and and beginning to categorize different parts of the natural world as belonging to uh as belonging to like all of these different classifications of of species and uh, chemicals and rocks, right? Um, that is also happening in in uh, like the economy, where the classification of the economy and the subdivision of the economy into uh, different uh, into into different uh, you know into like different categories is uh, occurring at the same time, right? And that's really this idea of cybernetics, of where everything is being organized and classified, um, and you know, if to to focus in on that cyber aspect of that word, it's like in the way that you know maybe now it is easier to to imagine of like the the you know like of, of like how a computer would function as being uh, very uh, uh, a, a sort of um, I don't know, as like a very clean and and pragmatic, practical uh, uh, reduction of of uh, like reality. One big thing that Caleb was mentioning that uh, is super important is the kind of analogies in which uh, economics and and the quote unquote modern 
advent of science uh, through the Enlightenment kind of play off of each other. Because as, um, you know, with Francis Bacon and the, the creation of the, the scientific method um, and the mass colonizations um, around the world, the learned, the academic realm um, is shifting from uh, an intense focus on kind of the, the previous and their own self-study and trying to fit everything into a cohesive, comprehensive worldview. Um, and within the kind of discussion of empiricism, uh, the first is that the a, a lot of folks try to take some of the advents, take some of the new discoveries that, that people are finding in one sector and try to uh, apply it to other sectors as well. And, you know, like that, it's, it's basically a form of analogy reasoning. Um, and in every day, you know, people use analogies all the time and there's not that, that big of a, of a deal um, because you know that it's, you know, there's no real consequence. It's kind of like trying to understand a concept by relating it to a possibly related concept. Um, but one huge thing with economics uh, that has been almost an underlying assumption um, in modern economic theory is the idea that Killa mentioned of equilibrium and, and homeostasis. Um, and this kind of comes from the, the French physiocrats who were the first, um, the first kind of like researchers um, and scholars of economic theory. And they thought of economics as like the economics of a domestic market as like a body um, and how like the, the money and the currency and trade is like the blood life of the body um, and how it needs to flow throughout the, the, the land in order or the, the, the state in order to uh, maintain this level of health um, within a nation. And so this is something that is very, very prevalent um, in even modern economic theory is the idea of homeostasis. E even when we go back to you know, the demand and supply um, curves that you learn like in high school uh, or that I have learned in high school, there's always kind of like this discussion that's like, well, things kind of want to meet in the middle that if this, the, the demand is high, but then um, the supply is high, then things will rest within that intersection point. Um, and so you might be thinking, well, um, isn't that a fair, isn't that a fair kind of analogy uh, to say that, well, isn't the economy of a nation similar to how um, the body functions uh, and that it needs to be healthy? But when you really think about that analogy, it, it breaks down pretty quickly because the ways in which, uh, it's quite obvious, it, like the ways in which the economy functions are not analogous to like the ways in which a body functions. Um, and kind of going back to our discussion at the beginning and how economics is not real in a sense, uh, that the body in and of itself is like a physical thing that you can, you know, touch and you can poke, right? Uh, it's something that you can study within like a closed system, like in a lab, whereas economics is not that. Economics is like this giant amalgamation of 
things happening at the same time that like you cannot put put an economy into a lab to try to study it and then try to analogize that to a body um, so number one is this idea of equilibrium um, and analogical reasoning uh, is that you can see this very clearly when people are talking about like demand or price or when talking about like the stock market right like when when prices go up in the stock market like like when a stock increases in value like people would say well there's like a lot of demand for that um and so the price is reflecting this kind of like equilibrium state whereas and and we can talk on and on about this but how financial institutions are not actually representative of this idea of equilibrium like um even talking about let's say the the example of toilet paper at the beginning um in which you have a shortage of toilet paper but then you have like scalpers who increase the price and then some folks are are willing to buy it but uh the truth of the matter is even within that that instance number 1 the population of folks who are who are buying this toilet paper is extremely small compared to the general population of people so it's not representative of like a general economic um system but then on top of that you have people like scalpers who are the ones who are jacking up the price it's not like the you, these are like small small entities within the larger market of a of toilet paper and so even that is not um it, it's not a fair representation of the entire toilet paper industry um and this is something that's very, very easy to see, let's say, with gas prices and that gas prices, you know, people like to talk about how gas prices are, are a reflection of, um, you know, like oil shortage or like some foreign entity. You know, there's some conflict happening and then uh, oil, the gas price goes up or like the president passes some law and then that reflects on the on these prices. But in actuality, number one, a lot of these entities, these petroleum companies um, are are artificially setting a price. It's the price that you pay for gas is not like a a quote unquote fair price, um, which rests within that the intersection of supply and demand. It's not. That's just not how things work. Um, and on top of that, so number one, these things are, are, you know, these markets are manipulated, which is not an assumption in modern economic theory, because if that was an assumption, then these models, they wouldn't apply anymore. Like an idea of, of supply and demand might work within like a friend group of five people, right? But like when you're dealing with millions of people and a very complex industry and an industry which is inclusion in order to set artificially high prices for things, then it's not fair, it's not accurate to say that like, well, the, the price of let's say bread or, or oil or something like that is a reflection of the quote unquote demand and supply. That's simply not the case. So it's like, if you have this, um, if, if you understand that economics, um, really interact does not interact in the ways that like it's taught or is kind of described and it's like what is what is the real economics and what the heck is this kind of like weird theory of economics that's been peddled um to people in order for them to understand 
Sorry, I've been talking for a long time. Caleb, Yash, you want to jump in? Well, you weren't actually talking that long. You just talked about a huge amount of material in a very short amount of time. Oh. Maybe why you feel like you've been talking for a long time. Um, but no, that's a great um, that's a great insight. I think uh, just in you sort of jumping ahead and giving people an idea of what we're trying to get at here is that um, economics as a concept uh, you know or, or as a as a science quote-unquote science relies on these incredibly basic algebraic concepts um, at its core uh, but you know if we if we look at the reasoning by which these these foundational elements have been come up with um, it really you know doesn't make any sense and you know obviously cannot serve to properly uh, describe um, you, you know the true complexity of, of what is happening uh, in the world right so I mean if we so if we just sort of rewind and, and return back to this concept of cybernetics right and it's and it's uh, you know and it's it's not this sort of um, it why well, I, I guess it is right uh, in cybernetics we this idea of you know like the cyborg I, I think people tend to think it's you know like the the addition of the digital to maybe the organic or to life but in reality is it is the 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 melding of the two is you're taking um, these very maybe biological uh, or organic ways of of seeing the world and you're melding it together with this very digitized constructed organized um, way of thinking right and so when what we bring that into uh, when we bring that into the, the concept of uh, the economy what that really means is you're taking these uh, these ideas of, of from uh, stemming from biological science of, uh, of things like homeostasis and self-regulation uh, Things which imply uh, autonomy and intelligence, uh, consciousness, right? And you're melding it with these ideas of uh, 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 like organizing organized systems, um, and 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 really, what the fundamental assumption is is that if you uh, categorize and organize a system to the extent that it becomes highly complex you will reach a state where whatever it is that you have constructed will take the form of an organism right so so there's this basic assumption that as long as you organize something enough it will convert into an organism right and 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 like people make this assumption all the time nowadays right and it's like oh well the brain is just a computer it's like well no okay it's not because computers don't have consciousness but people do right and it's this assumption where like you know as long as something is incredibly complex um, you know like the brain and, and the human body is very complex and then consciousness just sort of comes out of nowhere right and so it's the same thing in the economy where people have assumed that it makes sense to say that the economy is self-regulating right and and you have this very basic, very core assumption to the idea of economics of equilibrium, right? And 
and Jonathan talked about it, but I want to explain it more, you know, just in case people aren't familiar enough with this idea, right? But the basic uh, idea of economics, right, or, or at least neoliberal economics that is taught in America, right, because as I said, I don't, I don't really know about other countries, right, is that there are two lines. There's a supply line and the demand line, right? And so what the supply line is, is it's, uh, it's this line um, that for each point on the line, it tells you the price um, uh, for a given price, uh, how much of a product there will be that is available, right? And it's like I don't know if if you if you think about it, like um, you know if you don't if you don't receive any money, then you can't afford to make the product. So you need a certain amount of money to make more of the product. Okay, and then conversely, there is a demand line, which is uh, this idea of for a certain amount of for a certain price, there's a certain amount of demand for the product. Meaning, uh, if the price of the product is too high, then people don't want to buy it because it is too expensive, you know, and vice versa. Okay, and so it, this demand line and the supply line uh, are supposed to exist on the same graph, you know, and one is uh, a upward sloping line and one is a downward sloping line, and together those lines intersect. Okay, and where those lines intersect on the graph, right, is the point of equilibrium. Which is to say, it is the point where the supply of the product perfectly meets the demand for the product. Meaning that you know, uh, whatever the supermarket is, is has the price of the product perfectly set, where they can make as much of the product as as possible uh, that people will willingly buy. Okay, this is the this is the core idea of neoliberal economics and. Um, and Yash, you know, you, this is uh, how you learned it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you came back to it because this whole while I was sitting there and I was just being blown away by all the things you're talking about because obviously I have like a, a basic understanding of economics and just seeing it in this light was amazing. So I absolutely enjoyed the conversation so far. And with you bringing it back to supply and demand lines, it's just tying it all together brilliantly. So yeah, perfect. Right, so this this equilibrium, right, is this is supposed to be like the the balancing point, right? This idea that that the economy will tend towards this point where uh, the price is perfectly set and uh, everything that is being produced is is being produced that can be produced is being produced and everything that can be bought is being bought, right? And it's the same thing that we see in like the naturalistic side of science of like oh well in the human body everything is being perfectly regulated the temperature of the body the internal temperature of the body is correct the consumption of of calories is correct to produce the amount of energy that is required um you know all of these all of these regulating principles which make life possible you know similarly there is the uh you know you have these ideas in ecology as well that uh, you know, you need this proper distribution of of uh, producers and consumers across the environment. You know, and all together, it creates like this self-regulating idea where there's like, you know, the correct amount of predators and the correct amount of scavengers, and you know, they they all make sure that 
the ground has the proper amount of nutrients for the plants to grow, to feed the other animals, which feed the other animals. And then it's this sort of reproducing cycle that exists in an equilibrium state, right? And so this idea of equilibrium, right, which is common in, in, in the biology side, has been transplanted into um, these ideas of, of the, the economy where as a basic assumption we assume that the economy will tend towards this equilibrium point right and this is like the the, the core of uh, like free market capitalism this idea of like we won't touch the economy and then it will tend towards the, the proper point where the core of the neoliberal uh, capitalism the idea that you know will help the economy to get there because it isn't getting there easily enough right um, and fundamentally at its core it doesn't make sense because why do we assume that the economy is an organism like the human body when in reality it is like this sort of mental construct of an accumulation of of exchanges right and anyone who says that the body is just an accumulation of uh, neural responses you know like that's that's a total oversimplification of, of what is of 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 everything involved so that you can you know manufacture this analogy that you insist on using right and and so fundamentally it's sort of nonsensical but even if you consider like how these mathematical concepts have been created or, or come from like uh, you know it's almost sort of staggering how basic economics has been reduced like the the level of of simplicity that economics has been reduced to in order to fit like these very like uh you know so that so that like an economist can like turn it into a line on a graph um right uh uh i think I think there was a concept that you guys were talking oh right uh, this concept of like inelastic or elastic price right and it's like the, the reason we have this uh, this uh, distinction between inelastic price and elastic price uh, is so that we can have two different lines on the graph right to represent the the prices for the inelastic goods and the prices for the elastic goods um, because obviously if the price doesn't react in the same way for uh, you know, or the supply and demand doesn't uh, uh, change in the same way for given given a certain price um, for these two types of goods, then that messes up the the mathematical uh, calculation, right? It messes up your line because it doesn't make any sense anymore, right? So they have to divide inelastic and elastic goods so that they can have these two separate and distinct lines on their graphs, so that they can, uh, you know, factor these goods into their calculations. Right, but in reality, it doesn't really make sense, right? You know, if you think about it, there's no good which is completely inelastic, and there's no good which is completely elastic, right? Actually, all goods exist on a sort of, you know, you can't just like categorize all these things that people buy and, and decide that they fit into one or another of these categories, right? And, and a lot of these goods that uh, they that economists assume are elastic, you know, and it's like oh, things like luxuries, right? 
actually you can't make that assumption because you know everyone makes these decisions uh, you know as individuals right they don't follow like these these rules that these economies these economists make up to 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 govern uh, you know market behavior right and it's like oh well you would think that that in a uh, you know like in a in a lockdown situation you know people are gonna save more money and so prices of luxury goods are going to decrease uh, but in reality like what happened during you know quarantine it's like you know luxury goods did great you know they uh, sold way more than they were the previous year right and so that's because there's all of these uh, you know complexity to the market and this complexity to the way that people think so that you can't reduce that to like these basic algebraic uh, equations so that you can fit your stupid like lie on a graph right and what happens when you re when you the way that you make decisions in society is based on these lines on your graph is that you're making a dramatic oversimplification of uh, of uh, you know all these very complex, uh, uh, the the very complex dynamics of human behavior, right? You you think that you can reduce human psychology and human sociology into, uh, you know, like these incredibly basic assumptions, um, and then you're going to make drastically impactful. Uh, policy and economic decisions based on those uh, assumptions and ideas, right? And it's just it's 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 like insane, right? Um, uh, do you uh, do you two have anything to say? Um, I think one thing I would add is that kind of going back to the empiricist uh, framework, um, that a lot of the assumptions in in the alignment, um, and you can see it now, is that these kind of frameworks, uh, understanding perspectives of sociology, of economics, are uh, inherent to reality, that they are universally, they, that they can be universally applied, um, which is, is just not accurate, um, because when you're looking at how the real world interacts um, and descriptions of like, what is the real world? The real world does not exist apart from the context in which it is situated in. It does not exist apart from the history and the culture um, and the people. Um, in the same way that I know that in, in medicine, there are some studies that are talking about how, uh, you know, how like people's environment and uh, where they live impact their health and how that health impact can then impact their future generations. Um, and so even the quote unquote, like, well, if you just, you know, exercise every day, or if you, you know, only, if you eat vegetables, then, then you'll be okay. You know, you'll be healthy. You won't have these health problems. They, you know, they're not as universal as they were kind of like perceived to be in the past. Yet within the, um, the realm of economics and sociology, that like these these models, um, these theories are not only you know quote unquote descriptions of reality, which they're not necessarily they not necessarily are, um, but that they can be applied in 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 any and every instance and situation, um, 
And in order to make that happen, like Caleb was saying, is that you just come up with a new definition, you come up with a new theory, uh, you come up with a new little twist on your basic overall perspective in order to try to fit everything inside. Um, and you can think of this as like if you, you know, if you have like a stubborn friend who who has like a very narrow belief of a certain topic and you try to introduce like counter examples or counter um points to whatever they're talking about and they kind of like well they just reposition their their uh perspective just a little bit or they say well that's an exception that doesn't apply it's kind of like in the same way um that modern economics is kind of like if if something happens uh if there's some kind of thing that disproves or it kind of calls into question modern economic theory it's like oh well uh there's actually a distinction between what you're talking about and what i'm talking about here and we'll make that distinction so that it still fits within my model. Um, and that's kind of like how people, how the, the, the field is interacting with economics. And I don't see them moving toward a more holistic, non-just algebraic understanding of that. If anything, we're moving more towards uh, like empirical model-based economics. Um, like that, It's very easy to see. Caleb, anything? Well, uh, Yash, when uh, when you learned economics, uh, I'm sure you learned about things like equilibrium, right? But uh, when they talked about uh, specifically like perfect equilibrium, like that actual like perfect uh, balancing point, did they say it was attainable or unattainable? From what I remember, I think they said it was unattainable because it, it would assume, if I'm using the term correctly, ceteris paribus, which means... Uh, the other factors aren't considered and that cannot be the case in uh, when you take into consideration the real world and the psychology of the people involved as well as other factors isn't it like incredible that that they simultaneously acknowledge that the ideas which fund which like found the 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 whole like way of thinking is like unattainable you know, it's like everything is about reaching equilibrium point, but then also you can't reach equilibrium point. Um, that's like so funny to me. And I understand that economists don't take that in the same way as, as we are taking it now. It's like they, they take it as like a point of like semantics of like, oh, we can get like, it's like a limit and we can get like infinitely close to it such that it, there is no distinction between us and the, and the equilibrium point, right? And it's like such that like they will insist that it makes sense to, to perceive the economy as tending towards this economic point but the, the reality you know I, I don't know i just find that as a incredible like contradiction to 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 like you know just like to to endorse and then teach as if it's something which is which should not like that i don't know like i don't know i just think that people should sit in their economics class and then like have like warning bells going off in their head and it's like this doesn't make any sense you know you're saying that the entire economy of the entire world you know, is is all about reaching this equilibrium point, and that in in fact, the economy wants to reach this equilibrium point, and it tends towards it. But you know, actually, it's not. We're not gonna get there because it's just not possible. That's like, that's such a weird thing to say. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, what Jonathan was talking about earlier, um, with uh. You know these implications is that uh, 
the implications of, of these uh, these core assumptions um, you know and it's like uh, you know if, if you if we are like sort of basing this idea of like oh as we we all we have to do is like manipulate the economy towards this equilibrium point and you know because this equilibrium point is like the perfect uh, distribution of uh, of uh, is the perfect distribution of value between uh, labor and the owners of production, right? Which is essentially what um, it boils down to, right? It's this idea of like you know you have the supply side that is that is producing all of the things for the economy, and then you have the demand side, which is like all of these consumers who who buy or consume the products of the economy, right? And then also fundamentally is is that these people who buy the products of 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 the market are also the ones who produce it because uh, you know they have to like work in the stores and the factories and and all the corporations, right? And so when you say that there is a a, a balance or an equilibrium point between supply and demand, really that f that feeds this um, these outside conclusions of like oh well this equilibrium point of between supply and demand is the point in the economy where we have an equitable distribution of resources and value such that you know the corporations are making everything that they can create and the people are getting everything out of it that they can get you know they're getting paid and they're getting their things right um, and so this idea of like oh well since the economy tends towards the equilibrium point all we need to do is make sure that as much production is happening as is possible because that's how you find the equilibrium point on the graph right and that feeds into this idea of laissez-faire capitalism or neoliberal capitalism where the um, of you either allow the corporations to do whatever they want all the time or in the terms or, or in, or in the, the case of neoliberal capitalism you uh, give the corporations as much resources as possible so that the corporations can produce even more right and out of the assumption that this production of that 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 through all of these market occurrences you will achieve uh, the perfect equilibrium point where all the people are happy um, uh, and and you know I don't know. You look at seventy years of history of, of having this kind of economics uh, in America and the world at large, and it's like, well, is it working? Um, I don't think so. Uh, and and yet we still cling to these ideas um, and don't really you know, like we don't question them, and so they're just taught in school like they as if they you know all 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 the the business students and the ac economic students and they go and get their s degrees and this is what they learn in school for like two to four years, right? Uh, it's like, I don't know, like middle school understanding of how the world works. Um, I mean, I would argue that even beyond that, um, like the the real world does not even try to reflect all those ideas of equilibrium um, and of efficiency, because you just look around you, like the entities who 
um, mainly deal with quote unquote the economy and finance. Like it's not in their interest. They do not act towards this perceived goal of equilibrium. Like it's really only a thing that academics kind of peddle off um, within their own circles. Because you look at let's say the policymakers, you look at folks uh, in the financial um, sector, uh, you look at like the banks. They're not tending towards equilibrium. They don't even want to tend towards equilibrium. It's not in their interest. And then on top of that, when you understand that these elite institutions are more or less in cahoots with each other in order to increase the efficiency of output, um, in order to increase the values in which they have stakes in, then it, like no one is, no one really wants equilibrium. Like no actor who is in a position of power to quote unquote even do anything about it wants this equilibrium. Um, and so when policymakers are like, oh, well, let's increase the minimum wage because of inflation and blah, 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 blah. Uh, we need things to tend towards that equilibrium state, right? A more equal state. Like, frankly, you know, it, that's simply not the, the reasoning behind what they're what they're discussing, even if they use that kind of language. Um, and the reason why they use that kind of language is because to like the average individual, when you learn about these things in school, like listening and, and thinking and being uh, exposed in a way that's like, oh, economics is about that equal point, right? That fair point, right? Who doesn't like fair, right? And, you know, you ask people and, and just, just randomly, it's like, well, you know, I want society to be like this balance, right? I don't want to screw over all these businesses, but I don't want them to screw over me, right? Fairness. Um, and if they can give you this perception of fairness, that the, the economy is tending towards fairness, or that, um, let's say, oh, well, the modern economic system has failed to tend towards fairness, okay? But with monetary and fiscal policy, we can help you, right? We can help this economy move toward that idea of fairness, that's extremely appealing, right? That's extremely appealing for people. And people are not not only not willing to uh, like uprise or question that kind, but they would endorse it. Um, they would support that kind of thinking and then incorporate it into the ways that they talk about economics, talk about how policy works. Um, so that's just kind of like even... Like these discussion of equilibrium is one thing, but like it's it's important to understand that like these entities that are in control don't even want this idea of equilibrium. Um, so this idea of equilibrium is more or less just kind of like propaganda for the masses in order for them to be complicit and supporting um, and excited, energized by these policies, by the ways in which corporations uh, change throughout history. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think um, it really leads us into this idea that you know I think the recognition is that, or or at least uh, not recognition, but the the conclusion to be made is that you know this idea of economics, right? It's just it's just an idea, right? It just fits into, you know, the the general zeitgeist of other ideas that feed what what other people what people think of uh, government or or uh, society or science or life or whatever 
right? It's just it's just another idea. It's just another way of seeing things, right? And so when you make the mistake that economists do, and you presume to believe that this idea of economics of a general E is going to uh, sort of control reality, right? That these these uh, concepts or assumptions have the power to, you know, like through their, I don't know, through whatever reasoning is done, sort of uh, subvert the realities uh, of of the complexity of, of uh, the world at large is is that, you know, you fall into this trap, uh, this like ideolo- ideological trap of like, of like, you have lost touch of reality, you are, uh, you know, you are, sub, you know, allowing this idea to like sort of consume, um, not necessarily consume your life, but consume your understanding of reality and how things are supposed to work, rather than understanding that like any other idea it is just something, it is just another contributing factor, right? And so what that does, is it, you know, allows the neoliberal state to just add it to the repertoire, add it to portfolio of the things that they tell you and expect you to believe, right? Because it, it fits their, um, their purpose. Um, you know, and, and, and Jonathan, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, for, you know, these corporations and these politicians, like they're not, they're not out here to, uh, fulfill economic theory they're not even out here to achieve equitable distribution. You know, they're here to fit their their personal overarching um, goals, right? And so, like, even if we could intentionally force the, the economy to something which resembled an equilibrium, quote-unquote, like, that's not... It's not going to happen uh, because the machinery of the economy, the machinery of the the structure as a whole, like, is not geared towards that. It's like geared in the opposite direction, right? Like, um, right. So it's like it doesn't matter if your economic theory is uh, geared towards achieving an equilibrium if you know all the actual realities of of the economy are geared in the uh, the other way, right? It's not going to work out for you. Uh, Yash, do you have any thoughts? No, so far, like I said early on, just glad to be here and hear everything you've talked about. And I feel like what I knew obviously has been challenged. And I feel like I'm going to walk away from this episode with sort of a new perspective on things. But yeah, that's about it for me. Is there anything um, different between the way that you have learned economics um, and the way that we have described uh, economic education thus far? I'm just curious. I really like the way uh, John looked at economics as sort of an abstract idea rather than a... I mean, you, you did contribute to it as well, but he initially brought it up and... Well, coming back to the point where economics is not uh, a sort of a concrete thing that exists, but rather an abstract idea that has a force in society and has 
you know, it's there's an impact of this force on the things we do. So, I I I would say that I had an idea of this, but then again, I wasn't fully able to appreciate it until this until we had this conversation. So I would say that would be probably my biggest takeaway of this whole episode of conversation, if you want to say it. But uh, but Yash, um, like, is there anything that we've any teachings that we've attributed to economics as far that was different in like your education of economics? Um, so to say, like, did did your school in Singapore teach anything which is different, which was different than what we've said so far? To be honest with you, I would say no, because all the things that I was taught early on, um, you guys have mentioned it and you've developed further upon it. So I would say that it wasn't different, but definitely it was more, it wasn't as uh, profound as you guys uh, made made it to be, you know, because I had vague ideas and spe- of, of specific topics or specific subjects, but having this conversation just sort of allowed me to broaden my horizons when it came to not only the field of economics, but the subcomponents of it. Okay. Uh, cool. Thank you for that, uh, you know, that view into your perspective. Um, Jonathan, do you have anything to talk about at this point? Um, I actually wanted to ask Yash if you had any like lingering questions or things that you're you're curious about, um, kind of given our discussion so far. Well, uh, I don't know if this question can sort of be answered within the next five or ten minutes, but it's definitely something that is quite interesting to ponder about. Um, obviously, economics has evolved from when it originated to now. So what do you guys think is the future of the subject? And how do you think it's going to potentially evolve or devolve um, if that's the case? So it is a question um, both what exactly is economics really and what is the future of economics? Yeah, I would say that more more so the future of economics, because I think that would be a good way to wrap this whole episode up. Yeah, I mean, Caleb, jump in um, whenever, but I think uh, it goes back to the idea that Caleb mentioned um, earlier of cybernetics um, and keeping in mind this empiricist model uh, in that in when cybernetics as a field was being developed uh, in the early 20th century. Um, they have like things like rudimentary computers, the, the kind of idea of cybernetics as explained was like systems, theories, feedback loops, relays. Um, but now when we're discussing um, the integration of uh, like mathematical models and computation, um, it's something uh, I would say is almost beyond human comprehension. Uh, like the the ways in which um, like the stock market and the futures market operates, it it cannot be understood computation wise by humans anymore because it's based on an algorithm. Um, and as we are moving more towards AI, uh, 
and uh, an even more heightened reliance on computation um, and things that are beyond the kind of understanding of, of humans, that's really where economics is going to be. So it's going to still reside within these quote unquote, uh, like I think that the, the kind of propaganda uh, of like fairness and equilibrium will continue uh, because I feel like it is, it is extremely effective. Um, but the, the ways in which people, the actual institutions who are interacting with quote unquote the economy uh, are going to be more reliant on big data, on larger uh, ways in order to incorporate um, computation. And that's something that you've, you can see very clearly in the history of economics uh, since the late 19th century is that, um, yes, there has been development of economic theory, like a priori theory, um, but so much of it and so much of it now is just being taught on a uh, arithmetic computation level um, that it, it's almost a a subset of math in a sense because there's just so much math involved um, in and now in order to figure out things, legitimize things, expose things. Um, so that's really where I see it going uh, in the future. Caleb? Yeah, um, that's an excellent point, Jonathan. And um, uh, in, in a way, it's, it's a perfect tie-in to uh, maybe these ideas that we have addressed on this podcast in the past, um, because it actually really leads us into um, our discussion of science fiction in our conclusion that um, we are actually that like science fiction is actually like the future right because right now you know as it's a sort of these logical uh, conclusions that we can make that you know uh, technology is tending towards artificial intelligence uh, as a result um, our you know our economy our governance is going to become more uh, our everyday life is going to become more closely tied to uh, Things like artificial intelligence, uh, you know, a very mathematical and uh, digitized way of, of running society. Um, but when you combine that with the understanding of cybernetics, and you understand that actually, um, very fundamentally, very philosophically, that the the real idea which you know has which has produced all of these uh, events and, and occurrences is the attentional combining of like life with the digital right and and um you know like a, as we said in the science fiction episode you know the the science fiction of uh a hundred years ago has you know became the reality of you know a few decades ago right and it's like you know these science fiction authors were writing about you know go, you know space travel and space flight and computers and artificial intelligence and you know all of these things that we are you know beginning to develop for ourselves and beginning to actually achieve and have uh, in our everyday life and society right and the reality is that you know these science fiction authors who now are writing about uh, the sort of accelerated acce accelerationist version of the future you know it's not based in, in nothing right but rather founded in it's like oh this is actually the way that our you know uh, sort of philosophy and, and like at a very metaphysical fundamental level like this is the way that our society is is moving towards right it's like the current science fiction portrayals of the future of um sort of t 
two coexisting realities, right? Of like a very bright and shiny, uh, scientific, uh, very rich and luxurious and indulgent way of living, where you know you have your flying cars and you have your space travel and you have your really big shiny skyscraper skyscrapers um, uh, for a minority of society and 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 the other the flip side of that reality is that you have a very uh, very dark very grungy very poor side of reality where people sort of experience like trickle down the trickle down effects of you know all of these all of this technology right but they don't experience the wealth they don't experience the luxury um, they suffer from you know crime and and, and and poverty um, because that is the direction that our society is going in right um, these maybe a, a topic to delve into for another podcast episode but these ideas of accelerationism which have coexisted with uh, neoliberalism um, these ideas where society is moving towards um, this point where uh with the you know combination of life with digital is all of these implications for society um, where you know you have these very rich this very rich side of society which has all of the means of production and as a result experience all of its benefits but then you also have everyone else and 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 all the everyone else doesn't you know doesn't get to experience that doesn't get to enjoy that um, uh, because we never reached this, you know, this claimed equilibrium point. We never reached the balancing point. Uh, in reality, these two worlds exist in like a, in like a yin yang, right? Like if you consider the science fiction world, like you know, there's the upper world and the lower world, and together they create the whole world. And in reality, that there is a, a sort of equilibrium point, but it's not the equilibrium point that people imagine where everyone is happy. The reality is that everyone is miserable, <laughs> right? Uh, it's just that it's a very different world um, uh, and so you know if, if you ask what's the future of economics um, then to some extent you're also asking you know what's the future of society right um, so I think it's very interesting that actually you know these ideas that we've talked about today in terms of economics you know they actually are very uh, pivotal and and contribute to the ideas that we talked about previously of um, what direction society is moving in. Yeah, I think that was perfectly said by both of you. And I really like your point about society and economics being tied together. Um, but personally, if you ask me what the future of economics is, I would say it's Dogecoin. So uh, go buy ourselves some Dogecoin, Bitcoin. I'm just kidding, by the way. I don't associate myself with any of these cryptocurrencies. I feel like we could we could have like a whole entire episode just on <laughs> on the Absolutely. stock market and, and cryptocurrency. I uh, think we should. Yeah, I think we should. But yeah, Dogecoin. Anything more, Caleb? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about whether I want to talk about cryptocurrency, but it's probably too much. <laughs> for, it's really too much for this episode. So, um, 
Yeah. We can do that in the next one. Well, we could, but I also don't want to talk about cryptocurrency for two hours. Yeah. That sounds miserable. No. It <laughs> I don't, don't want to talk about, <laughs> about GameStop and Dogecoin for two hours. Ah, uh, no, no, no. I've heard enough of that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this is a good episode. Um, Absolutely. I think we sort of fleshed out the ideas. And, you know, of course, uh, we didn't talk too much about actual historical figures. We didn't talk about much about actual schools of economic thought, because um, that's not what we really set out to do today. Um, if you're really, if you were really interested by what we talked about today, you need to go subscribe to the sub- Pseudodoxology podcast and go listen to their seven-hour political economy episode, and then you will uh, maybe receive some answers or maybe be more confused than before. Um, one of those two. But it would be the most fruitful five dollars you could possibly spend. I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't spend five dollars for hundreds of hours of uh, research on uh, things which are important. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think I have anything much else to say. Uh, we apologize for you know the long break since the last episode. Um, you know it happens. Uh, don't. Not too sure about what the the next episode will will be on, but uh, you know, <laughs> you, I guess you you listen to it when it's out. I guess. <laughs> we'll go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. Anything you guys want to say before we finish up? John, anything from you? Um, just always a pleasure talking with y'all. Yeah, I'd say the same. It was fun. Learned a lot of things, and uh, I'm gonna go flex this newfound knowledge on the next person I find. All right. Well, thank you to everyone if you have listened to the entire podcast. You know, I know we've gotten complaints about the length, but um, we don't care, so that's too bad. And, have we actually gotten complaints? <laughs> we, we have gotten some, uh, some positive feedback. feedback that maybe the, the podcast could be shorter. And uh, yeah. right, no, answer is that it's not uh, going to be any story. But, uh, you know, we, we still appreciate the feedback regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we respectfully decline to take it. Uh, you know, just just, <laughs> just, just, don't, just don't just don't listen to it all at once. You know, there you go. Mm, yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for listening as always, and uh, we will see you in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>